Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to a brand new episode of the Intentional Leader Podcast where we help you lead yourself, inspire others, and make the world a better place. I believe that you and I each have a unique contribution to make to the world and I hope that this podcast in an often difficult world can be a community to help you stay focused and come and find inspiration every time you listen. Today's guest, General David Petraeus, likely needs no introduction for anyone. General Petraeus served over 37 years in the U.S. military. He culminated his career with six consecutive commands, five of which were in combat, including command of the surge in Iraq, command of U.S. Central Command, and command of coalition forces in Afghanistan. Now, following retirement from the military and a unanimous confirmation vote in the Senate, he also served as the director of the CIA during a pivotal moment. General Petraeus graduated with distinction from West Point, and get this, he's the only person in Army history to be the top graduate of both the demanding U.S. Army Ranger School and the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. General Petraeus also earned a Ph.D. from Princeton University's School of Public and International Affairs. He was named one of America's 25 best leaders by U.S. News and World Report, a runner-up for Time Magazine's Person of the Year, the Daily Telegraph Man of the Year, a Time 100 selectee, Princeton University's Madison Medalist, and one of Foreign Policy Magazine's Top 100 intellectuals in three different years. General Petraeus hasn't slowed down in retirement. He now serves as a partner and chairman of the KKR Global Institute. He's also a member of the boards of directors at Optiv and First Stream. He's a venture investor in more than 15 startups, and he's engaged in a variety of different academic endeavors. This episode was so much fun for me. General Petraeus was very kind to let me explore what life was like for him growing up and how his parents shaped his life. We also discussed how he met his wife, what it's like to be a grandparent, his time at West Point Ranger School, his impressions of President Bush, President Obama, and President-elect Biden, all of which he's worked with. We also discussed the role of mentors in his life and much, much more. I think uh, I only got through about a third of my outline with Gerald Petraeus, but it was a really great conversation. Maybe we can get Gerald Petraeus back on for a round two. A few asks of you before we jump into the conversation. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please just hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so you can immediately get all of the new exciting episodes that we'll be releasing this year. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please just take a few moments to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It doesn't take but a minute to do that, and it really helps us impact more people and grow this podcast. A special thank you to all of you that have taken the time to do that. And finally, if you get value out of this show, I want to ask you to partner with me financially to help make this possible. All you have to do is go to my Patreon account at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Cal Walters, just my name, Cal Walters, to become a supporter. You can make a one-time contribution or you can become a regular supporter of the show. Your support goes to help offset the monthly expenses associated with producing this show. That's it. No more ask. Now just sit back and enjoy this fun and wonderful conversation with the great General David Petraeus. General David Petraeus, welcome to the podcast. I am so privileged and excited to have you here today. Thank you for being on. Good to be with you, Airborne. <laughs> Airborne all the way. 
Well, sir, there are so many topics we're going to get to today. The the first question I have for you. So I uh, was looking at, uh, I was doing my homework and I saw that in the 1974 West Point yearbook, your roommate, Chris White said this about you. He said, Peaches came to the Mill Academy with high ambitions, but unlike most, he accomplished his goals, a striver to the max. Dave was always going for it in sports, academics, leadership, even his social life. This attitude will surely lead to success in the future army or otherwise. So clearly you accomplished a tremendous amount and you still are, but I have to ask where this nickname Peaches comes from. Uh, when I was a little kid and um, in Little League Baseball, uh, I think I was nine years old and the very first time I went up to bat and, you know, they had some other kid up in the booth who was announcing and he couldn't pronounce Petraeus and he said, well, next at bat is <laughs> David P -p 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 Peaches and that stuck. Uh, it stuck all the way through West Point and frankly, a number of my classmates still refer to me as Peaches. <laughs> So uh, playing, playing baseball, was that, was that a big part or sports in general? Was that a big part of growing up for you? Sports in general were, yeah. Uh, baseball was big. Uh, I was also uh, a, a skier. We had a ski team. Uh, you know, we were in about 50, 60 miles north of New York City and I had a number of ski areas around us. Um, I was also a soccer player. Uh, in fact, we won the soccer championship my senior year of high school. So it was sort of Bruce Springsteen's glory days. <laughs> it was one of those events where the, the whole town followed the school bus of us out to the neutral site for the final championship game and, and then followed us back and all the rest. So, uh, yeah, very much a, a, a big part of that. I was also a tennis player. And at West Point, I was on the intercollegiate soccer and ski teams. Do you remember being or feeling like a leader when you were on those sports teams? Was that some of the first times that you kind of felt like a, a leader or do you feel like that came later for you? To a degree, but I think it actually did come later. Uh, I was not the president of the class. So I was on in student government. Um, I was in a variety of different activities. I was the head of all the youth groups, consolidated youth groups of our town uh, and a variety of other activities. But, but again, there were others, I think, that were probably more advanced when it came to leadership at that time who ended up being the ones uh, elected captains of the team selected. And somewhere during West Point, I think, is where it started to, to come out. And I started to realize that, first of all, I realized that life is a competitive endeavor and you really do have to try to be the very best that you can be, that you don't get a trophy just for showing up as, or a t-shirt, again, just for, for turning up at the event. Uh, it goes to the person who is the best. So I really did start striving very hard to try to be the best that I could be academically uh, in leadership. I ended up on the brigade staff, uh, was a star man, as you would appreciate, top 5% academically, oh, yeah. uh, and then was a varsity letterman. And and again, I think I discovered that I can compete and it's a matter of doing everything you can to prepare yourself for what it is. And by the way, you also compete to be the best team player that you can be. And one of the real, the early accomplishments uh, when I was a young lieutenant was just like you going to ranger school. And, and I prepared very, very uh, assiduously for this. I 
would do the Ranger PT test back to back to back and, you know, max it each time. And uh, I did a lot of red marching. So I was in very, really top physical condition, had, you know, all the extra uniforms. So I never had to do laundry at night like the other, you know, every angle that you could possibly uh, do to prepare for it and, and studied the subject matter. And of course we were at the infantry school already anyway. And then, frankly, really went for it. And I ended up being number one in the class. Uh, and then, as you may recall, there are, the, there are other awards as well. There's a Darby Award, Merrill's Marauder Award, and so forth. And I got those as well. And I was very proud because Seriously? the Merrill's Marauder wow. Award, as you may recall, is in large measure peer mm-hmm. uh, ratings. So it's not just were you the number one in the class in terms mm-hmm. of points or patrols or uh, all the rest of that. It's, it was about what do others think of you? What are your fellow rangers think of you. And, you know, I worked very, very hard to actually be the best ranger buddy that I could possibly be and to help others uh, along the way. In fact, I used to write the orders for everybody else uh, (laughs) until they caught on to that because I really studied this and had it down. So it was quite an extraordinary experience. And it was a validation of the whole idea that you, you can absolutely compete. Um, and with a bit of luck and preparation, of course, mm-hmm. luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity, uh, that you can come out on top, but that you also want to come out on top, as I said, as a team player as mm-hmm. well. And that carried way into the into my career. I remember as a two-star general of the proud 101st Airborne Division during the fight to Baghdad, the invasion of Iraq. Uh, I realized that the biggest contribution we could make to the overall effort of the U.S. Army Corps was to do everything we could to support the 3rd Infantry Division mechanized, which is the one ahead of us, if you will, in that fight. And so we pushed our 72 Apache attack helicopters out in front of them every night to try to vacuum up all the enemy so that when they made their push and eventually did the Thunder Run into Baghdad, that we would have removed as much as possible of the uh, artillery, rocket, missile, uh, and even armor units and so forth that could uh, give them a fight. And at one point, the division commander called up and, and said, hey, Dave, can you, do you have any extra 155 millimeter howitzer ammunition? And I said, yeah, we do. In fact, we'll not only send you the ammunition, uh, I'll send you the entire unit because it would take too long to download it from the guns and put it on trucks and get it. So you just take the whole unit. You need anything else? He said, yeah, how about an infantry battalion? And I gave him the battalion that I had commanded when I was a Lieutenant Colonel in the 101st. In the meantime, we were fighting in the cities that 3rd Infantry Division had bypassed because those were sitting astride our lines of communication. And there was a point at which the 101st, which consumed enormous quantities of fuel, uh, and our division, which had 254 helicopters and consumed enormous amounts of of JP-8, we were going very low on on fuel and he was going low on ammo. And we were all waiting literally for this huge convoy of uh, supply vehicles to come back from Kuwait. And we were very concerned that the single road on which they were traveling could be interdicted. Hmm. So we did a great deal of effort to go into the, we did some of the first work in real cities, 500,000 people of Najaf, another 500,000 Karbala. And those are tough fights. Um, But that was the contribution we could make. We really had wanted to air assault onto Baghdad International Airport. (laughs) Just like the 82nd Airborne Division, your proud division right now, (laughs) wanted to jump on 
uh, Baghdad International Airport. And then both divisions realized the best that we could do for the overall cause uh, was to support the 3rd Infantry Division as the main effort. Yeah, what you've described both in Ranger School and in Iraq, I think is is really unique. It's this this individual competitiveness, which certainly got you prepared for Ranger School. But then also the fact that you did so well, uh, and folks that didn't go to Ranger School aren't familiar with it, maybe don't appreciate it, but to do so well with your peers is also unique. Because often you'll have people that are really individually motivated, but they don't take the team approach and they're not really helpful to the other folks on the team. I remember I had a mentor at West Point who told me, Cal, it's not just about getting through Ranger School, it's about how you get through Ranger School. And that was a total paradigm yeah. shift for me. <clears throat> I'd always, yeah. I just got to, yeah. I've just got to get over the finish line and get my tab. And I'd never really no. stopped to think, oh, it actually does matter how I do this. No, you got to, you got to pull your Ranger buddy across as well. If, if, if that's required or, or help, uh, just as uh, he will try to do the same for you. Um, you know, look, I, in, you know, I didn't do, this wasn't a calculated, um, you know, let me help my peers so I can, I didn't even know there were peer ratings. Yeah. I don't think until the first time we started rating each other, <laughs> it was just the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> Ranger school is about the team. It is about, uh, again, your Ranger buddy and then your other Ranger fellow students. Um, look at one point, you know, there, there's that walk up Mount Yona in North mm. Georgia. And we were a winter Ranger class. So it was seriously, mm. seriously cold. I mean, it was way, way below freezing. And there were two two nights where they actually said, stop everything, just survive, light fires, you can do whatever you want to do. Um, so this was quite significant. But I carried another guy's rucksack up Mount Yuna. You know, I he was just not going to make it. And so I said, okay, throw it, and you know, how you can throw it on top of your own rucksack. And I said, you carry my weapon because I'm going to need both hands to keep this thing on top of my rucksack. And but it was, again, it was just the right thing to do. And everybody pulled together and everybody had moments where um, he welcomed the help from other people. I split my toe open in the swamps when we were doing some kind of um, river crossing operation. And, you know, I had to be taken to the hospital or mm -hmm. stitches and all that stuff. And then I refused to, to not go back. <clears throat> so I was able to convince him to let me just put my boot back on and get after it. But everybody encounters some kind of difficulty, obstacle, injury, as you well know. And, mm -hmm. and again, there is a tremendous amount of luck involved in it. But so is the uh, amount of preparation and how important that can be. And it's obviously trying to, again, be as absolutely as prepared as you possibly can. Uh, because, again, that really is the definition of luck. When the opportunity is there, you prepare to, to capitalize on it. I wonder, so I, as I was doing my homework here, I, uh, I was reading about your father's sickness, uh, and I'm going to read this little excerpt. He said, or this was a, an excerpt, it said, the, the no excuses attitude sickness Petraeus displayed with his son came from his own experience as an officer on a Dutch ship and then as the captain of a U.S. merchant marine ship in World War II. Sictus allowed little room for error in the younger Petraeus's performance in school and sports or at home, in part because of these high standards. A desire to please his father would, in great part, shape Petraeus's desire to excel. Do you think that, well, I, let me just ask, what, what do you think was the biggest impact that your father had on you? 
Well, that was certainly right up there, I think. Um, he also, uh, both my parents were great readers. Uh, they both loved history. They loved sort of intellectual history on top of that. So I think you add that. But, you know, his response to me, if I came home and, you know, hadn't gone quite to the standard that was sort of expected, uh, was just sort of look at me and say, results boy. Uh, and, you know, results boy is a pretty good response. Um, and it's a pretty blunt response, needless to say. Um, and it was given in a spirit of love or what have you. But um, that's at the end of the day, it's about results yeah. and no amount of excuses or explanations or contextual circumstances or what have you really can uh, ameliorate the fact that if the results weren't what they should have been. Mm. So that was a pretty, pretty good standard. Uh, that was a pretty good uh, approach. And results boy stayed with me very much, but so did actually, again, the love of reading. Mm. Uh, we would go for a number of years, every summer, we would go and retrace Paul Revere's ride. Again, we live 50 miles north of New York City in the Hudson River Valley. Uh, we settled there, frankly, because my dad was an old sea captain and there was a, obviously you could go sailing there. We always had a, you usually had more than one sailboat. I had one when I was a kid, which was great experience also managed to turn it over. And it was not one that you could just sort of flip back around. <laughs> that was an experience as well. Um, but we would go and retrace the steps again of Paul Revere and would go back to Lexington and Concord and the Minuteman statue and the rude bridge that arched the flood uh, and, you know, reread various poems. And Concord, um, Massachusetts, as you may recall, was an intellectual hotbed. Um, it was the the... Uh, the Alcotts, it was uh, Thoreau. We would walk around Walden Pond again and put yet another stone. You know, and this was, you know, I was a kid. So, and especially when I was in my teenage years, what I really wanted to do is just hang out at the motel swimming pool. But I appreciated this very much uh, in, in later years. Uh, we walked the battlefields of Gettysburg. We went to Williamsburg. We went to a whole variety of different locations. Um, my dad was fascinated with the era of real sailing ships. And so we'd go to Mystic uh, Harbor, uh, we'd go on old Ironsides uh, in, in Boston and so forth. And again, I think that that turned out to provide a certain degree, again, of appreciation uh, of what we were back when, uh, what our origins were, what our traditions norm, all of this. And to, to have a degree of respect, I think, is quite considerable for those who uh, founded our country, who fought for its freedom along the way. Um, and then for those who were contributing to the, uh, the debates of the day and to the, the intellectual discussions uh, of that time. So uh, I think those were two great, um, I don't know, contributions to my development uh, you know, they were very proud of my athletic activities as well, and they'd, they'd go to the various games and so forth. But it was it was probably that intellectual side, I think, that was ultimately uh, really important, as was just the sheer results boy uh, approach of my father. Again, <laughs> he was a crusty Dutch ship, uh, yeah. ship captain. Uh, he had sailed. He was the captain of a Liberty ship during World War II, and he was the captain at the age of 29, because they were losing 
captains and crews faster than they could make them. They could actually turn out a Liberty ship, I think at least once a week or something. It was astonishing how quickly these no way. vessels wow. were, were manufactured in the U S at the height of the production, but the U boats, uh, and in some cases up around North Norway and so forth, there were some, uh, battleships, German battleships in the fjords that would come out and they had nothing that could stand toe to toe with the battleship. My father's convoy was told to scatter. Um, a very large percentage of the ships was sunk. Um, he survived a torpedo going underneath them, a magnetic one that didn't, didn't uh, detonate, actually. They saw it. Uh, the first mate was speechless for days because he was the first one who saw it. They braced for impact, you know, the bells, all this stuff. They were already at battle stations. But so he had had quite a war. A, a merman's run uh, was quite an experience back in those days. It took many months for them to creep across, trying to stay as close to land as they could. But eventually you have to sprint um, from uh, the northern part of uh, the UK up in Scotland somewhere. I forget what the last port is before they have to go up north of Norway and get into Murmansk. And of course, in those days, the ice was so thick so much of the year that the Germans knew there were only a few months during the summer when you could get through. So they would concentrate the U-boats and the, the battleships uh, and the cruisers and so forth. There was one battleship, the Scharnhorst, that was particularly devastating. Hmm. That must have been fascinating growing up, hearing those stories from them. It, it was, although like a lot of the veterans of that war, and of course they were in the military during that war, and you know their per capita loss rate was the highest, was actually in the merchant marine. Hmm. higher than any other service. And, and they would re- gather together periodically. There was a merchant marine association and so forth. But but there wasn't a huge uh, telling and retelling of, of war stories. There was focus on the present um, hmm. and on elements, again, of our history and, and so forth. Are there any of those moments where he used that phrase, results boy, that really stand out to you the most when you when you think back on life growing up? Um, you know, there were, you know, a couple of academic uh, report cards or, hmm. um, you know, we did lose a game that senior season and, um, you know, there's a shot that I might've made that kind of stuff. And again, this wasn't harsh. Um, yeah. it, <clears throat> but, you know, as you start to wind on and offer this excuse and that excuse and exploring various explanations, uh, for why the ball didn't go in the goal. Um, you know, you just sort of results, boy. Um, and so you, you got that message and it's a pretty good message. Mm. It, clearly. So you got a PhD at Princeton, you graduated from West Point, you are a scholar, soldier, soldier, scholar, your, your son, uh, went to MIT. I know you, you've had, you've clearly passed on a love of learning to your children, what advice would you give to, to parents out there of how to, how to pass that on? I mean, your mother was a librarian, so I imagine that had a significant impact just growing up around that. But how, how have you passed that on or how do you think parents can cultivate that in their kids? Well, I think example has a great deal to do with it. Um, I think um, helping them explore, discover, reading from an early age, you know, now we have um, a granddaughter and a brand new grandson, uh, wow. her son and, and his wife, both of whom were Afghanistan veterans, as I mentioned 
before we started. He was with the 173rd Airborne and then did some more tours with the Ranger Regiment in Afghanistan. In fact, he was a second lieutenant rifle platoon leader in Afghanistan when I arrived as the commander. And uh, so for the first six months, uh, he was out on patrol and, you know, I'd see these SIGAX, the significant activities would pop up on your, on your computer and say big firefight at, outside cops say Adabad. And then, so I'd wait for a number of hours until, you know, he might get access to a secure internet uh, machine back in the base and send me an update, which wasn't that often. Again, he wasn't on email to me all the time, but he knew yeah. that if he was into something mm -hmm. that I would very likely know about it. Yeah. We never visited that base ever while mm -hmm. he was there. I kept, I'd see it on the calendar and I said, guys, I, you don't seem to understand. I do not want to go anywhere near this, this kid. Um, the last <laughs> why, thing he Why was that? Why would, oh, okay, go ahead. Well, I look, I mean, there were insider attacks. I don't want, mm -hmm. um, the, the host nation locals to connect. I mean, it's bad enough that he's wearing my name tag. I'd actually sent him with different name tags. Really? Uh, with his first name is Steven. And so we sent him with Steven's name tag, but he went, I wasn't the commander. I was the commander of U.S. Central Command. Mm -hmm. So I was the commander of the commander and nobody knew Petraeus. They knew the commander on the ground. And then all of a sudden I ended up being the commander on the ground. Right. And he's already wearing those name tags, so he couldn't take them off, obviously. So, mm. um, you know, that was one part of the other. I didn't want to add the pressure that he already had. I mean, he had an extra rock in his rucksack by being the commander's son to begin with mm -hmm. and the ribbing that, that that gives. And, you know, you have that during the – I mean, it was quite explicit when he went through ranger school. They were not yeah. – as you may recall, the ranger instructors <laughs> no, don't they... pull punches. They they <laughs> delight in, in needling uh, students about anything that they can find and say, oh, yeah, yeah. So you can, you can do as well as your, your old man did. I actually spoke at his graduation, which was a real thrill. Oh, wow. Uh, it was terrific. And in fact, I went to his uh, final airborne jump as well. That was when I was commanding the surge in Iraq. And I happened to be back for the first testimony, the six-month testimony. And he and his eventual wife, who also went to ROTC at MIT, although she was at Harvard, they were both in that airborne school class. And so I uh, did the was on the drop zone for the final jump. I actually had wanted to jump with him, which, as you know, you can do if you're in uniform. And I, you know, so master parachutist or what have you. So I figured I could pull that off. But, you know, on the eve of the biggest testimony in Capitol Hill in your life, the six month <laughs> mark of the surge, I figured this would not be a good, good optic to show up in the, on crutches or in a wheelchair, uh, getting, you know, injured. I'd had a broken pelvis, as you may know, from a mm -hmm. free fall accident. So uh, anyway, we were on the drop zone and then went and did the speech for that. And it was a real thrill to pin jump wings on him. And then a much bigger thrill, frankly, to put a ranger tab on his shoulder. Wow. That's that was so when cool. I was at central command. What's it like and being a grandson? Him, actually, we got to commission him. Um, in fact, I commissioned his future wife at Harvard first. Uh, mm -hmm. They were not an item then, although I knew her. Uh, she's very, very sharp. Mm -hmm. And then went over to uh, the MIT uh, area and then, and, did the uh, ceremony for the commissioning of all of his. In fact, we did the real official commissioning at the Minuteman statue uh, up in Concord, Massachusetts. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to know what it's like for you to be a grandfather, because I, I think so many people- <clears throat> Pretty they, awesome, actually. When they think General Petraeus, you know, it's this, obviously this huge figure who has had such a huge impact on 
the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, what is Grandfather David Petraeus like? I, you know, I'd like to think that Grandfather David Petraeus is delightful to his <laughs> three-year-old granddaughter. Uh, I'll meet the five-week-old grandson at the day before Christmas. They're going to come mm. through. Wow. Uh, it's really quite wonderful. Uh, you know, the old, what people say about it. I mean, all my classmates, many of them had grandkids before we did. And they all said, oh, it's terrific. You know, they bring them over, you spoil the kids, you have great fun, <laughs> let them eat what they don't normally get to eat, and, you know, do what they give them gifts and everything else, and then give them back to their parents uh, who have to deal with them for the rest of the time. No, it's, um, you know, it's really, it is quite wonderful, actually. Uh, it really is exciting uh, to see, you know, a little person and, and again, to help the, our daughter and son and their spouses and so on. So it's, it's, it's quite a thrill. In fact, my wife is uh, up in New York right now that mm. our son is in his final year of the JD MBA at Harvard. Um, and his wife is uh, leading her second startup, which is quite successful. And it's in the New York City area is the base of it although they're doing it all virtually now. And so my wife is up there helping with the new, again, five-week-old grandson. Wow. That's so cool. I, it is. Speak, speaking of your wife, so I'm, I'm fascinated to hear the story of how you met her. So I, especially as someone who was a West Point cadet. It was a blind date. <laughs> I, was, I was on the brigade staff and uh, the different regimental commanders' wives, the, you know, the real colonels that were the overseers of the regiments, in those days, they were full colonels. I think they're lieutenant colonels now. Um, the wives were all calling us all up, and it was in the first semester of the fall, and they were inviting us over for dinner because, again, part of their almost responsibilities is to, again, host cadets and so forth. And so anyway, uh, phone rang in the uh, uh, adjutant's office there, and I picked it up, and she said, uh, you know, are you free on Saturday? I said, yeah, I am. And I said, let me check with my roommate. I, yeah, he's free too, you know, because we thought it was a package deal. <laughs> so, and she said, well, um, you know, are you escorting anybody to the football game? I said, no. And she, would you be willing to do that? Well, sure. So, and it turned out that this woman had actually had her eye on somebody else on the brigade staff, but he actually <laughs> was busy. <laughs> and so now she had to produce someone. So, and I'm not sure that she'd met me or, and um, anyway, I, I didn't immediately learn who my blind date was going to be. And then when I did, I was a little bit horrified. I bet. Uh, and so I figured I was going to do the, you know, the minim minimal socially acceptable level, which was to take her to the game, take her to dinner with a, a friend of mine and his fiance, and then we'd drop her back off and then go out ourselves and it turned out that we really had a wonderful time together. And, and obviously one thing led to another, but it was a source of endless ribbing, as you might imagine. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I took enormous flack, even though I was out of the company uh, that semester. And then ultimately when I graduated, um, still the ribbing was just terrible. And you know, the, the, the ruffles and flourishes. So again, she was the superintendent's daughter, three-star general, the commander, if you will, of U.S. Military Academy. And he was the superintendent, by the way, for all four years of our class, which is fairly oh, really? rare. Oh, wow. He was a suit for four and a half years. So we gave him an, an, a class ring. He was an honorary classmate of ours. And there was a great attachment between the class and him and also uh, his wife, my mother-in-law, 
who's still alive uh, in her well up in her nineties. And, and so that song, you know, that they play to, for the general's march and all that stuff, da, 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 you know, the number of times of stars. And so one of my buddies would be on the brigade staff out there uh, over, you know, as the Corps is marching on and then they'd play the, the general arrives and they'd play the ruffles and flourishes for the general. Uh, and he would sing along underneath his breath, my son-in-law, my son-in-law, da, 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 my son-in-law. So again, yeah, that was, and we tried to keep it quiet, uh, which was not, not that easy to do. And then, um, and ultimately I actually wouldn't let them announce the, the engagement until after the final chain of command selection was announced. Uh, I didn't want somebody to say, yeah, he was on, you know, cadet captain or on the brigade staff because of his father-in-law. So uh, I was enormously sensitive to that, but you know, you, after a while, you obviously put that behind you. He was a wonderful role model. He was a true soldier, scholar, statesman. Uh, he also had taught at West Point. He um, really was uh a student of the world spoke a number of different languages had an extraordinary gift for languages. I don't know if it was seven or eight or what have you. Wow. And was perfect for NATO. Uh, his final two positions, uh, four-star positions were a four-star command in uh, allied land forces Southeast, uh, which was all the forces in Greece and Turkey. Although they weren't exactly talking to each other, it was not long after the Cyprus uh, dispute in 73. And then he was the U.S. representative of the NATO Military Committee, which was the four-star position at that time, NATO being a good bit larger, obviously, during the Cold War than it is today. But he could speak half the languages of the countries uh, in NATO at that time. And, and again, was really uh, an inspiration, an example to the class. Uh, you know, he's one of those individuals who, again, had enormous energy, enthusiasm, brains, uh, intellect, um, and really was, you know, quite accomplished on the battlefield. I think he had three silver stars. He got one, by the way, from uh, Major General Jumpin' Jim Gavin of the 82nd Airborne Division, to wow. which he was attached uh, wow. as an armored cavalry troop commander in the uh, final weeks of the war, where his job was to get through all and contact the Russians across the Elbe. Um, it was quite a, quite a harrowing story. So again, it, really an extraordinary individual um, and was a source of, you know, an awful lot of, uh, again, e example, uh, energy, uh, sharing, and so forth. And we really enjoyed being with them over the years. Sadly, he passed away when I was in the second year of the surge, uh, as did my father. And obviously, you couldn't come back during something like that. So it was later on that we came back, and then um, he was buried in Arlington Cemetery after a ceremony there. Do you recall the first time you went over there to to meet him? I, I, you must have I, been. I didn't, so I didn't meet him. I went over to the side door, which is where she was going to come out. <laughs> I didn't go to the front door. Um, and then, you know, we sort of slinked up the hill to. <laughs> the football game again i should know she she didn't come home much i mean it's mm. you know it's the ultimate fishbowl you're living in quarters 100 right next to yeah. the whole core of cadets area um she was an attractive blonde i mean mm. the last thing she wanted and the problem was you know there are two types of cadets there's the the type that will fall all over themselves to date mm. the soup's daughter 
And then there's the types that will cross the road before they want to be seen near the soup's daughter. <laughs> so, um, and, and she was in her, we're in the same year group, if you will. And uh, she was at Dickinson College about a, I don't know, four or five hour drive away in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So she didn't come home that much, which is why <clears throat> this other woman had sort of, you know, they wanted her to come back for a football game and so forth. And they actually wanted her to meet this other guy. But as I said, uh, he wasn't, a, wasn't available. So I've thanked him many times ever since. <laughs> Preparation and opportunity meet. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I was. <laughs> no, totally little preparation that. of that one. Uh, no. <laughs> that was just opportunity. That, that was some, some good luck. Uh, did he become, was he, would you say he was one of your first mentors? Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, there were certainly some members of the faculty who were very encouraging, uh, obviously your tactical officers and so forth. But, but in terms of a real role model, um, he certainly was right up at the very top of that list. But I was very fortunate over the years to then work directly from, for some extraordinary mm -hmm. leaders. Um, the one most significant was General Jack Galvin, mm -hmm. who also was a soldier, scholar, statesman. His final position was as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Uh, and I was a speechwriter in that job. It was the year of the Intermediate Nuclear Force Agreement. It was a spectacular experience. But I'd worked for him Originally, when, when he was a two-star division commander and I was his aide as a captain, and then I worked for him uh, temporary duty uh, during my first and second year at West Point, when he had me pulled down to uh, Panama, he was the commander-in-chief of U.S. Southern Command, was the title in those days, all of Latin America. And it was a very exciting summer uh, because I realized this is a command at war. This is during the Cold War. The focus is all on, of course, uh, Europe and NATO and the major forces that we had over there. We had 250,000 Americans on Germany alone at that time, just to give you a sense of the scale, two entire army corps, each of which wow. two divisions and armored cav regiments, all the support elements and so forth. But here uh, we were uh, in the headquarters uh, in Panama uh, and I go to the first morning update and I realized, my gosh, <laughs> We are engaged in a counterinsurgency operation of quite ferocity uh, in El Salvador. We are helping the Colombians in, in, in their fight uh, against the, the FARC. Uh, that's a counterinsurgency. Uh, we're helping the Peruvians. This is a bit more counterterrorism almost with Sendero Luminoso. And oh, by the way, uh, hush, hush, we don't talk about it, but apparently we are helping to arm the Sandinistas uh, as they go after Nicaragua. Uh, so we were enabling an insurgent operation there. And this was my first, I'd already been somewhat fascinated with uh, counterinsurgency. As I mentioned before the show, I was fascinated by the French experience in Indochine, Indochina, Vietnam, uh, also Algeria, the British in Malaya, uh, in uh, Oman was a particularly interesting one and a variety of other of these operations. And I went to French jump school and, and, and again, you just pick this up and there was a degree of fascination. And then all of a sudden, here I am uh, as a special assistant for a four-star uh, combatant commander whose forces are engaged in serious operations. And we went into El Salvador uh, a couple of times during that, that summer uh, met with uh, the president, who was hugely impressive, 
uh, we had a great partner there. So that built, now you've actually seen it to a degree. Again, I wasn't you know, on the ground as an advisor, certainly, or anything like that, but, but you get a pretty good idea of what's going on. And it was fascinating. And, uh, you know, ultimately years later then I would be the operations officer for the United Nations force. So a true UN officer, that was a coalition in Haiti. And then and it was right before I commanded a brigade in the 82nd Airborne Division, in fact, and then later on a year in Bosnia, which was peacekeeping, although we also had, I was dual hatted as an American uh, a clandestine joint task force, now well-known uh, Operation Justice Assured, which was the war criminal hunt. And then also did the first counterterrorism operations uh, after 9-11, actually, the very first one was in Sarajevo, and that task force uh, conducted that operation. I was the deputy commander for it. So it's a wonderful preparation for ultimately mm-hmm. arriving. Here you are, you know, yeah. as a young two-star commanding the 101st Airborne Division, and you're on your own up in Mosul in northern Iraq, where you didn't even think you were going to be. I mean, we were supposed, we were told to study up southwest Baghdad and all the way down through Karbala and Najaf. That's what we had all of our preparation, our maps, everything else. And on 36 hours notice, we mounted what one of the biggest air assaults in history, uh, and put an entire brigade combat team on the ground almost simultaneously, just every single helicopter we had and raced down into this two million population city, which was uh, really almost literally in flames. Two days earlier, a small American force there had killed 17 civilians in a riot. And uh, so they were under serious pressure. And, you know, there was not a great deal of guidance coming from Baghdad. In fact, we actually had a change of command of the three-star. Uh, and, but to be truthful, you know, I, that was fine with us. Um, mm. A lot of us had experience doing it. The very well-developed campaign plan for Bosnia in particular was something that could be translated into action uh, in Iraq. The problem was we didn't have all of the international organizations and the uh, non-government organizations to do the tasks that they would normally have done. Uh, the UN, for example, doing the, the police training, ISITAP or somebody doing uh, the judicial training, uh, others doing the political work. We actually had to do it all. And we assigned uh, a unit or an individual to every single one of the tasks that we could see. Some of them were very straightforward. Our Our medical battalion and field hospital obviously partnered with the Mosul Hospital to get it going again, one of our signal battalions partnered with the Ministry of Telecommunications. Um, but then, you know, who actually helps a university rebuild of, of 20,000 students and, and there are 30,000 students, actually, it was 20 colleges. And, and so the one of the Aviation Brigade headquarters uh, was assigned that because all of its helicopters were farmed out to the brigades. Um, and then I was the senior advisor to the governor that we, we had the first election uh, in we did it in five May. This is a couple of weeks before Ambassador Bremer even showed up in Baghdad. So in a sense, you know, the whole life, my dissertation at, at Princeton was on the uh, lessons that the U.S. military took from Vietnam on the use of force. Um, it's as if, you know, you've been preparing your whole life for this moment. And, yeah. and then we built on it, of course. I went, went back as a three-star after that in the United States uh, for 15 months, and we did the counterinsurgency field manual to distill what we felt we should have learned. And then that became the intellectual foundation for the surge in Iraq when I went back as a four-star for 19 and a half months to command that. And then later, of course, uh, Afghanistan. 
You're so right. Cause it's easy to look at your career and, and the arc of your career. If you don't really look at it and, and preparing for this, I, I really appreciated just how much preparation you had done before 9-11 even happened. And it wasn't like you knew this was coming, obviously, but, but just, I think what it, for me, it highlighted, and I'd be interested to get your take is just, you never quite know what you're preparing for. Uh, you never quite know what opportunities are going to come your way. Uh, but all of that hard work, all of that preparation, all of that, these mentors that you had found along the way and, and really had, uh, they poured into you and you poured into them allowed you to, to rise to an occasion that uh, certainly served our country uh, at a time that we needed it the most. Um, but I, I guess to me, it just seems to highlight the, the, the power of preparation, even when you don't quite know what you're preparing for. Well, again, keep in mind that once the Cold War was over, uh, and particularly after the Gulf War, it was pretty obvious that no country was going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States. Keep in mind that in the yeah. wake of the Cold War uh, ending and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, uh, again, after the Gulf War, where we turned the, whatever it was, fourth largest army into the eighth largest army in you know, 100 hours or something, uh, whatever the statistics are, uh, it was pretty evident that no country was going to try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the United States military. Uh, we had no peer competitors at that time. It's different now. We have resurgent great powers uh, and renewed great power rivalries uh, with the resurgence of Russia and obviously the extraordinary rise of China. Noting that that relationship between the U.S. and China, though, is vastly different uh, from that between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, with whom we had no economic uh, interaction really to speak of other than occasional sale of some excess wheat. Uh, but yet the U.S. and China are the, each other's two largest trading partners or were uh, before the imposition of the tariffs. So it's a very, very different uh, type of relationship. It's one that has elements of cooperation and one that has elements of serious competition uh, as well. But in that period in between, uh, again, it seemed to me that what was most likely uh, would be the kinds of wars in which we ultimately became involved. Yeah. Um, and, and that turned out to be the case. And, you know, as fortunate as a light, uh, if you will, infantry air assault and an airborne infantry battalion and brigade commander, we would do the kinds of rotations that you have at the Joint Readiness Training Center. We actually start out, it used to be called the low intensity conflict or lick phase. It was really counterinsurgency by another name. And then ultimately you would also do a, you know, a main defense fight and then a combat in cities uh, task would be the end. And all of that, again, was fantastic preparation for what it was that we ultimately did. And, and frankly, far better preparation than what units did out in uh, the Mojave Desert uh, at the uh, National Training Center, where you basically had, again, tank on tank with no civilians on the battlefield, no built up areas, no, it's just basically uh, military to military. And of course, that wasn't the kind of battlefield that we experienced, even for the heavy uh, units, you end up pretty quickly in urban areas and you end up with an enemy who learns that we don't have anything that can actually stand up to an M1 tank. So we won't, we'll even take off our uniforms and we'll, you know, if we do it, we'll try to swarm it or we'll try to create obstacles or we'll 
come at it in some asymmetric fashion with improvised explosive devices, ultimately, sadly, provided by Iran that could slice through the armor of an M1 tank, uh, the explosively formed projectiles. But so this seemed to be, uh, again, what lay ahead for our army, but obviously you had to be prepared for anything. I think the challenge for those of your generation is very considerable because we are still engaged in irregular wars, mm-hmm. um, not just in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also in Syria, Somalia, North Africa, Northwest, uh, Western Africa, helping in the various countries in Asia as well, the Asia Pacific region. Um, so we have to continue to carry out those kinds of operations, certainly generally doing training, equipping, advising, assisting, and enabling, not doing the frontline fighting, which is the appropriate way to do this when you have the host nation partners that we have built up over decades of of work now. But of course, the big focus, rightly, uh, is again, this resurgence of great power rivalries, and in particular, the now called Indo-Pacific theater uh, and the extraordinary rise of China and in ensuring that we have that China perceives both the uh, will and the capability that is necessary to deter what would be a catastrophic event uh, if you ever had real great power war in a nuclear age. So that rightly is going to be the focus. Um, That's largely in air and maritime and also space, cyberspace, subsea, Um, more than it is Army, frankly, uh, although there are certain elements of the Army, long-range precision missiles and so forth, ballistic missile defense and some others, and certainly the partner development capacity and special ops. But we have to remake our military uh, to prepare so that we can effectively deter something that is unacceptable and could spark, again, a real conflagration Uh, At the same time that we are still nonetheless carrying out uh, various tasks in irregular wars, uh, the so-called endless wars. And I think we have to recognize when it comes to endless wars that you actually don't end them by ending your participation in them, which is what we often seem to, you know, we are going to end the war in Afghanistan by removing our forces. Actually, we will not end the war in Afghanistan. We will actually touch off a new phase because if the Afghan forces aren't supported by uh, the advisors and the enablers that we provide, particularly the uh, unmanned aerial vehicles and the precision strike assets from the air, that war is going to go into a new phase as the Taliban tries to converge on on Kabul. And undoubtedly, the warlords will be back. And so you'll have something reminiscent of what took place two years after the Soviets left Afghanistan and after they de- stopped funding the government that they left in the wake of their departure. And that was a horrific period for the country. It was a a period that saw millions of Afghans flee into neighboring countries, Pakistan in particular, uh, an enormous burden on them. And that's not something that we should, needless to say, want to see happen, especially given that that was the kind of uh, context also in which not only did the Taliban take control of much of the country, an extraordinarily oppressive and uh, verging on extremist uh, Islamist extremist organization, but of course that's also when they allowed Al-Qaeda to have a sanctuary on Afghan soil in which ultimately the 9-11 attacks were planned and the initial training of the attackers was conducted. Yeah, and you have advised 
different senior leaders, the, the presidents of the United States throughout these different various points in the critical moments of our, our history. You've, you've had a very close relationship with President George W. Bush. You've interacted a good bit with, with President Obama and with President-elect now Biden, who will have to decide how to navigate uh, the situation in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm curious, just briefly, if you could comment. I mean, none of I, I certainly haven't been in the room with with those individuals. But for example, how would you describe President George W. Bush and his leadership style? Well, first of all, you have to understand that the most intensive interaction, and it was very intensive during the command of the search, we did a weekly video teleconference uh, that started every Monday morning, Washington time at 7.30 in the morning, ran until 8.30. Ambassador Crocker and I did that every single week, and the president was at the head of the table in the situation room with the entire national security team arrayed around him uh, in that room. And that set the tone for, uh, you know, the president really had, in a sense, gone all in on the surge and on, frankly, Ambassador Crocker and, and me. So I saw him most significantly during that period. That's the final two years of his presidency, uh, where he took over control of that war, having to a degree prior to that, largely deferred to the Secretary of Defense and the Pentagon. Uh, and they were, in a in large measure, the ones that were in the kind of real control and, and directing it. And he really uh, took this into his own hands. So it was very different. Now, I did certainly meet him. In fact, he came to Fort Campbell, Kentucky when I was a two-star. After we got home from Iraq, he spent an entire day with us. He blew his complete calendar out of the window. Um, what was memorable of that, there were a couple of memorable uh, events. Um, one of them was that you know we had some lunch in a mess hall or something with all the commanders and command sergeants, majors of the major units on, on the post, uh, not just the 101st, but also 5th Special Forces Group and 160th Special Ops Aviation Regiment and others. Uh, but so we wanted to give him a memento of some type. And, and so we got him some mint julep glasses, you know, it's Kentucky and all that stuff. And, and they're fairly sizable, substantial tumblers. Uh, and had, you know, the 101st crest etched on them. It was pretty, they were pretty nice. And so he picked one up and he said, you know, in Texas, we call these shot glasses. <laughs> um, so the, the sense of humor was always there right. and it was quite delightful. Hmm. But so was the very, very serious uh, uh, and sincere understanding of the sacrifices that were being made. And so I think it was the White House asked us if we could have the uh, the spouses, all of the Gold Star families, so the spouse of those who were killed, uh, or if it was parents in some cases, if there was no spouse in any event. And there were probably 60 to 70 families. That was just from the first year. Uh, again, from all of the different units, not just the 101st Airborne Division, in the, the Division Museum, and we spaced them, I don't know, five or 10 meters apart. And the idea was going to be that he would basically shake hands with each of them, maybe, I don't know, do a photo op or what have you, if they were inclined to that. Uh, and it was supposed to be less than, I think it was supposed to be 55 minutes or something. And so you can do the math. I mean, it was basically a minute with each, each couple or family. And it ended up being, gosh, I think two and a half or three hours or something. Wow. And then the people 
you know, after a while, uh, his body man or whatever, you know, the guy who was his aide is uh, trying to keep him on time, start plucking his sleeve. And, 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 and of course, his wife uh, was with him. And, and the president finally just went, he said, I got it. Mm. Go away. Um, I'm going to do this. And so I don't know what was waiting for him in Washington, but whatever it was, it was going to be a heck of a lot later than what the schedule called for it to be. And that was quite extraordinary as well. I also was in the Oval Office when I, um, I think I came home as a three-star. I was going to Iraq as a three-star. That was not welcomed by the Secretary of Defense who thought, you know, this young, unpredictable three-star shouldn't be in there. Who knows what he's going to say? And it was interesting because I actually made notes for myself. Um, and and by the way, I'd been prevented from seeing the National Security Advisor before deploying. I was also prevented from, from uh, doing a video conference with Prime Minister Tony Blair, who wanted to know, what are you going to do for the training and equip mission? I mean, that's the ticket home. So what do you, what's the plan? So, you know what I said to the defense attache from the UK? I said, look, if, if he calls my home phone number, on a Saturday morning, I'll answer it. And, you know, I'm not going to be impolite. Um, so we had a long conversation. It was the start of a very good relationship, actually, mm -hmm. with first Prime Minister Blair, then his successors of several over a number of years. But in that Oval Office session that I had, again, I think it was when I came home as a three-star, um, I had a set of notes for myself. And I had another copy, just only one other copy, though, and so he said, well, General, you know, give me your impressions. What lessons did you learn? Tell us what, what we can take from the, you know, the first 15 and a half months of the training and equip mission. This is my three-star tour in Iraq. And so I started going through these. And I said, actually, here, Mr. President, you take, follow along. And, and the SecDef almost took it out of my hand. <laughs> no um, way. <laughs> so, but I said, screw it. I, you know, what do you... What are you going to do? Send me back to Iraq? I said, I, you know, the commander in chief wants to know my impressions. This is my second tour. I've been there now for two and a third, approaching two and a half years. I have a few views on this stuff and, uh, and I'm happy that he wants to hear them. So in any event, that was, but it was really in that four star tour and the level of intensity of his involvement was extraordinary. It was decisive because at the end of the day, many in the chain of command had sort of given up on Iraq. Uh, and it was really taking a huge toll on the military services. It's understandable that some of the service chiefs really, you know, just wanted to hand off to the Iraqis and try to get out and, you know, patch up their, their services and so forth. Uh, the commander of Central Command had serious reservations, actually sent in a two-star admiral who had never been in Iraq before, but was supposed to in a week or two develop a plan to draw down. This is when we were just two brigades into the five brigade buildup. So again, this was a, there was not universal support. And on Capitol Hill, it was even worse. Uh, they were literally one or two votes away from the 60 needed for cloture in the Senate uh, to do a vote on some kind of restraint or restriction, constraint on uh, funding for the war, or perhaps even defund it, who knows. Mm. So it was a dicey time. And uh, his personal leadership was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And it, and again, it came at the end of his time where he really was very, very familiar. He did, by the way, a weekly video te teleconference with Prime Minister Maliki of Iraq as well. So he was very engaged um, and, 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 and hugely impressive. 
Um, needless to say, when the new administration comes in, um, there's a, there is a certain uh, a ramp up of understanding. Uh, there were the flurry of uh, assessments and so forth uh, of both Iraq and Afghanistan. The, uh, the way forward in each of those. Uh, and as the commander of Central Command by then, obviously, I was attending the principals committee meetings for, for all of those. And, uh, you know, again, a president who really did his homework, uh, seriously bright, um, would ask the tough questions. You know, I think there were nine or more meetings just for the second Afghan policy review that he attended personally. I don't think there's ever been a degree of engagement by a president like that. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, some gutsy calls along the way, like mm. uh, going after Osama bin Laden, which was my yeah. final couple of months in Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, obviously, Admiral McRaven, the commander of JSOC, mm. was the commander of the operation under the CIA director that night, not under me that night, which was the normal uh, situation uh, as that Afghanistan was the main effort. So again, very interesting. And, and you know, a lot of exchanges with Senator Biden when he was mm. in the foreign relations, he was the head of the foreign relations committee, uh, then as the vice president uh, and, and so forth. And again, someone who would uh, very much uh, want to hear what you had to say, mm. um, had poured a lot of time into it. Um, he wouldn't leave something left unsaid. And I frankly didn't leave uh, something mm. left unsaid. And, you know, it, I don't think there was anybody who ever was more willing to beat himself up to do something for uh, the troops or their families. And I think part of this was because, of course, his own son was serving and did actually deploy to Iraq um, toward the end. I guess it was a little after the end of the surge. Um, so, again, all of them, you know, absolutely committed to, needless to say, to doing the right thing. Uh, didn't mean that we didn't have, uh, again, uh, see things through a different prism from time to time. And I think some of, some of that to be expected. Again, my focus is on Iraq or mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Their focus is on the whole world and, and issues that extend way beyond the commander's purview uh, into areas like strain on the force, budget deficits. I mean, politics. It um, you know the presidents do actually have to understand <laughs> and uh, and and appreciate and assess the effects on Capitol Hill politics, alliance politics, national politics, and all the rest of that. So uh, again, these were these were really extraordinary privileges to to serve with those who were uh, the, our commander in chief. Um, and I'd seen earlier ones uh, because of the vantage points I had serving as the aide for the chief of staff of the army, Carl Vano, who taught me to repeat, repeat, repeat what really matters. This is again to get mm -hmm. the you know the big ideas right. The six imperatives I can still state them in my sleep. Uh, every single speech had those uh, that he gave uh, General Hugh Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, for two very important years during the Clinton administration, which included the Kosovo air campaign, strikes on Osama bin Laden, uh, strikes on uh, on Saddam Hussein, uh, a variety of other uh, actions, uh, still the operation in, in Bosnia and the war criminal hunt and so forth. Um, someone who kept on his desk in front of him, photos of coffins uh, that had come back with the American flag on them, uh, just mm. to, as a constant reminder uh, that, you know, this is not abstract. This is not academic. Uh, this is about real lives. Mm. And uh, took that enormously seriously. 
you know, given that my dissertation was on the military influence uh, and the use of force with the lessons of Vietnam, uh, it was fascinating to see that play out as the executive officer for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, having seen a bit of that uh, for the, the chief uh, and then also for a Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. And then, you know, there's one other, General Jack Keane, who um, we had some extraordinary experiences together, including standing next to each other uh, when I got shot on a very aggressive live fire exercise when I was a battalion commander in the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, he then sub, he was a one star. Then a year or so later, he was a two star. I was his division G3, uh, chief of operations plans training. Um, and then over that, I was a brigade commander when he was a corps commander. He was willing to take risk and to underwrite risk and to, to, you know, he supported, for example, uh, air assault operations in training with the seats removed. As you know, that's really very rarely done in training with the exception of the Special Ops Aviation Regiment. Because if you have a forced landing of any kind, even a hard landing, those ballistic seats, which would normally cushion that and reduce the chance of injury, are not there. And uh, you, you're going to have injuries on your hand. But his argument and my argument uh, in supporting that and pursuing it uh, as a brigade commander at Fort Bragg, for example, where it was not in, there was not enthusiasm necessarily in the organization, but he was the three-star post commander and that he was the one who had to give the approval. My view was, look, if we go into combat, we are definitely going to have the seats out. We need to learn how to do this. <laughs> and if you're going to do a night air assault uh, in combat, we sure, ought, sure as heck ought to try that in peacetime and get that right. And he was willing to, again, to do that. Very aggressive live fires, again, so aggressive that, you know, one of the battalion commanders took a round through the lung, but he stayed with me way through the the post hospital, then back to the medevac bird to Vanderbilt Medical Center to uh, have thoracic surgery, which ironically uh, happened to be by Dr. Bill Frist, uh, who ultimately was the majority leader of the Senate some years later, which was very helpful. Uh, when, you know, if you want to get a message to the, to the appropriators, it really helps if you could, you know, the majority leader comes out and specifically wants to see you and your unit. We were also, of course, he was from Tennessee and Fort Campbell, Kentucky is actually two thirds of it is on Tennessee. So uh, again, he's an extraordinary guy. Uh, mm -hmm. General Jack Keene is one of those who has extraordinary presence and he just gets the big ideas right. He has this operational judgment that has been very persuasive. Um, and in fact, in many cases, has made enormous contributions after uh, taking off the uniform mm -hmm. uh, in advising President George W. Bush when everyone else was very cool on the idea of a surge. He was the one person out of five in the Oval Office who said you should surge and mm -hmm. you know this is who should command it and it should be this kind of campaign. Um, he has had considerable influence in this administration as well. Uh, so another really extraordinary individual who had, uh, again, everything he did, uh, the big ideas were right. I mean, even things such as in a parade, a review, we had the three, five, one rule, which I obviously still remember to this day. And it was, he said, look, commanders, if you really love the troops, don't get up there and speak for 25 minutes while they're broiling in the hot sun, get them off the field. So the, the, the rule was that the, out, out, the host commander, I think, had three minutes to extol the virtues of the outgoing commander. The outgoing commander had five minutes. 
And then the incoming commander got all in one minute uh, <laughs> and get him off the field, pass and review. But it's this kind of idea. And he had this for everything. It didn't matter what the subject was. He had, he would just get the big ideas right. We had a major uh, ice storm in the northern Tennessee, western Kentucky area. It was really quite catastrophic. And it was knocked out all the power. And, you know, normally the localities, uh, the counties, states are supposed to request through FEMA. It's supposed to go to the Pentagon. Uh, they then authorize you to do something. You know, days later, uh, you can actually help. He said, these are fellow American citizens. This is a, a life or limb situation. We're going to take everything we have and push it downtown. We're going to get the... the uh, trees out of the roads. We're going to hook up one of our enormous generators to each of the facilities that can't fail, like the senior citizens home, which you know, power had been lost and all the rest of this. He just cuts through um, and, again, is willing to be bold when bold action is required. Get the big ideas right. That Gotta is get such the big a, ideas right. It is right. such a great, I love that. I love, it's all about clarity. <clears throat> Uh, and then, like you said, repeat, repeat, repeat. Well, sir, you have, uh, unfortunately, I think we're out of time and uh, I am just so privileged to have had this opportunity. Thank you for taking so much yeah, time been a pleasure, Cal. Thank with you. our audience today. And uh, sir, I just want to thank you for all of the incredible service that you've given to our country and you are truly a treasure. And uh, we, we really appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Uh, it was a privilege. And, you know, I, now I thank you because you're the one in uniform in the great 82nd Airborne Division. And uh, with the All-Americans, uh, there's that's an extraordinary unit. I have to be careful having commanded the 101st <laughs> Airborne Division, but been the deputy commander and acting commander of the 82nd. But a really extraordinary unit. And Arden Street is a very, very special place uh, there at the center of the military universe. Thanks very much. Sir, it's been a privilege. All right, Pleasure. sir. Take, you, take care. You I bet. really appreciate it. Have a great Thank day. You. you bet. Hey, friends. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with General Petraeus. What a wonderful story. There's so many wonderful things that we can take from what he said on that interview and also just his story in general. I loved his willingness when he was in Ranger School to help his battle buddies. And he did the same thing in combat. But I think the, the unique part is that he put in so much individual preparation to be ready for Ranger School, that it allowed him not just to succeed personally, but it also allowed him to have that extra bandwidth to help his, temp his team members. And I think it just highlights the importance of preparation. As Stephen Covey would say, spend time sharpening the saw. We never know exactly what opportunities will present themselves down the road, but there's always value in preparation. And that's something that we can totally control. We can control how much we prepare, how much hard work we put in. And there's something beautiful about preparation. I think it's a great anecdote to anxiety and fear. Whenever I have something coming up that I'm worried about or scared about, it's amazing the more I prepare for that thing, how a lot of that anxiety and fear begins to diminish. And I think that's a wonderful uh, example that General Petraeus sets in that regard. And I hope that you enjoyed this. Please let me know what you thought. Please let me know what resonated with you. Um, hopefully we can get General Petraeus back on the show for a round two because there's so much more I want to talk to him about with leadership. And I just encourage you today, friends, as you go out, remember that life is short. So let's go make it count.